Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. We are broadcasting from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and I'm sitting behind the broadcast desk in the Radio Lighthouse studio. Sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who may be listening to the program. Let me just start out the program, as I often do, by reminding you that this is an interactive program. We are excited that you have chosen to take time out of your Tuesday evening to join us. Pastor, we've got two questions to start out the program with. One is a follow-up from last week uh, toward the end of the program. Someone asks, I would like to find out Pastor's view on Psalm 109. Is it a psalm to be used against others? And if so, what are your views on the overall psalm? Is it too harsh? And when should we use it? A little off topic, but something I'm pondering. Well, I think last week I said I would do a little bit of investigating, uh, investigation into the, the psalm itself. Um, just like to make a few comments that might be helpful in understanding that psalm, perhaps even interpreting it and applying it. Uh, I, I mentioned that the category into which under which this this psalm fall, this psalm falls is called the imprecatory psalms. Besides Psalm 109, uh, Psalm 34, verse 48, Psalm 40, verse 14 and 15, Psalm 59, verse 11 to 15, and Psalm 69, 22 to 28, those are what you call the imprecatory psalms. You would remember that the psalms are broken down into different groups. You've got penitential psalms, you've got psalms of petition, psalms of prayers, you've got psalms of intercession, you've got psalms of uh, lyrical psalms, you've also got messianic psalms, you've got history psalms, etc., and these imprecatory psalms. Um, the thing you need to bear in mind that would help you to understand uh, this particular psalm is that what David is doing in, in these psalms, he's calling for strict justice. And what I mean by that, remember that under the Old Testament economy of law, the general rule was lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. It means that if a guy knocked out your eye, you could knock out his, you couldn't go any further than that. It was a restraint. Really, that's it was really a restraint. It was not that you had to do it, but that is the extent that you could go. And in these Psalms, what David is basically calling for is strict justice. This has been done to me. Uh, I want this done to the, the person. And by the way, David is not David is not taking personal vengeance. He himself is not going to execute this judgment. He's calling upon God, who's a just God of the universe, to act on his behalf. And if you go to the book of Revelation, when the Saints who have been killed during the tribulation period are found under the altar. They asked a question: How, o, how long, O Lord, before you revenge our blood? So there, when when the word that is used there, really, they're asking for God to intervene and justly respond to what has happened to them. I think similarly, this is what David uh, is doing. The other thing is that um, you know the Hebrews 
thought in terms of concrete language as opposed to abstract thinking. And what I mean by that is uh, they never made a differentiation between sin and the sinner like we do. Uh, the two of them are, are, are seen together. So when you're dealing with sin, you know you're dealing with the sinner. We make a subtle distinction because of the New Testament knowledge that we have and the biblical teaching in the, in the, on, the, on the New Testament economy. So David is, can't divorce the acts of the sinner from the sinner himself. Uh, I think we've been learned to de- we've learned to decipher that for the teachings of Christ that we have in the New Testament. Um, the other thing I would say is that we have to be very careful that we don't impose a New Testament ethic on our Old Testament dispensation. We have so many other, uh, so much, other, so much more light than they have. For example, we have the complete revelation of God. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which they never had. We have the renewed heart, or we are under the new covenant, where the Bible says that God has written his law on the heart of the believer. Uh, We've got the intercessory work of Christ on our behalf. And, of course, we have the new nature. I mean, these are five things that really uh, did not exist to the extent that they they are within this dispensation. So we, we cannot expect David to have the same sentiments we would have had because we've got so much more light than David had. Um, it, I, I, I think that um, some helpful principles might be um, could be mentioned that would probably help you to better understand and interpret these these particular things. Um, first of all, um, as I mentioned, these imprecatory psalms um, are not dictating any kind of thirst for revenge. It's a call for justice. Um, in these psalms as well, these imprecatory psalms, the exhibit, David exhibits uh, what you might call a, a, a very special personal abhorrence to certain forms of evil, especially treachery or cruelty or betrayal. And these particular sins seem to be especially abhorrent, and this comes out in these imprecatory psalms. They're, and also in these psalms, really, these are a zeal for the cause of God. Uh, in the case of David, he's the one chosen of God in, in the theocratic kingdom. Uh, an attack on, on, on God's king is an attack on God, uh, uh, an attack to undermine uh, David's uh, sovereignty and, and to undermine David's government is to undermine the government of God. So, in other words, when David called for vengeance in this regard, uh, it's not gen- gen- the zeal just for his own self, but it's also zeal for the cause of God. And the, the other thing I think that is I- important is that and uh, these signs reveal that David believed and had faith in the moral government of the universe. That an injustice done to him, a moral God is going to re- respond and bring about um, strict judgment on those persons. And one last thing I would say that would help us in this whole matter. Remember that David never had a complete understanding of the doctrine of final judgment. Um you, you find the doctrine, the final judgment, a lot of it, you find it in the, the prophetic writings. You find it also in the book of Daniel. This is before Daniel's time. So David, uh, in these Psalms, it's not surprising that not knowing the final uh, recourse of final judgment, uh, David is asking and expecting that judgment be executed in his lifetime because he didn't have that perspective of the final judgment that was coming, etc., etc. I think when you begin to take all of these factors into consideration and read these particular psalms, this particular psalm, I think it it helps you to understand and better interpret what this psalm is all about. And one last thing, in in, in this psalm, you'll notice that David is. Um, um, calling down the curse of God upon this particular person that he don't have children. 
And again, this is the cultural thing. The worst thing that could happen to a Jew is that he didn't have children. So this is what David is. He is in the framework of his of his of his um, prayer and request to God is within the framework of the culture in which he lived and the norms that uh, that would rule and regulate uh, his time. So we can better understand why David would pray in this mode, but this is certainly not the way a believer should pray today because we have further revelation. And the Lord has told us very clearly, as I said last time, that we used to love our enemies. We told to pray for them that despitefully use us. And uh, we must even be willing to forego um, and suffer even for the cause uh, and not take personal vengeance, uh, uh, etc. So that's what the Bible says, uh, your enemy hungry feed him if he's thirsty you give him water but not only that tell you to turn the other cheek so i hope that helps somewhat uh, to help you understand this psalm and put it in the setting and don't try to transpose it into a new testament situation uh, under which we live thank you to the individual who sent in that question from nevis pastor one other question that came in this past week before the program started it says, good afternoon, Pastor. Someone who is born a born-again Christian has to be careful about meeting people since the church doesn't really have single men and women. It's a difficult situation. There are no single groups for that age range. I think that's something the church needs to think about. Yeah, I, you know, I get, um, I'm dealing with some situations now where um, there are some believers, I mean, genuine believers who are really looking for partners. And the truth of the matter is that the church where they're in, the pool is too shallow, is too small. And um, they're almost, I think, in some cases, driven to go outside the church to find a partner. I think that is very unfortunate. Um, I I think one of the, the solutions to this problem, especially within certain denominations, is the idea that we need to come together more frequently so that we can widen the pool. Um, if within my church, for example, there's a young man, a young lady who is at that age where they're really trying to find a partner in life, but there's no eligible, eligible persons within our church, there may be somebody else in one of the other churches that affiliate with us that might also have the same kind of thinking. But if we isolate ourselves and we never come together uh, periodically and uh, we never have conferences, we never have meetings together, you you put the person in a very difficult position. I know that we can tell them they can pray. I, I don't dispute that. That they can wait, but there's some persons who are waiting for 10, 15 years, 20 years, and still nobody's coming around. Uh, the other thing I would suggest that if the person should uh, should not only not only the local conferences, but some of our ch- ministries and some of our churches got conferences that are held annually. For example, the Baptists have a conference that is held every year in January. Another one is held in October. Uh, I would recommend a person like that to really attend these conferences. Uh, again, you're putting yourself in the position where you get to meet some godly people. It doesn't mean that because you visit, you're going there, you're going to find a partner. But at least it widens the pool and you can make a better selection. The other thing is that I do feel that there are times when a church, depending on how many people within that church are in that position as, as singles, I do think it is proper to start a singles ministry. But a lot of time, that that vision has to be a burden that somebody in the church feels in, in that regard. It's not something that the pastor can do all of these kind of things. I think it's somebody who has a real deep concern and willing to invest time in trying to help people of that sort. I think the uh, maybe uh, singles could come together and meet together, talk, go places, um, have activities together. 
um, I think that a lot of that would would help if we would they could socialize a lot more and do some things together as opposed to try to deal with it in isolation. But it's a very difficult subject. Uh, I, I, right now, as a matter of fact, I'm dealing with a matter of that nature. Not the person doesn't belong to our church, uh, but I understand the struggle they're going through. And I and also the other fact is, of course, is when you're. Uh, I don't want to seem as though I'm a male chauvinist, but when a lady begins to get in her late 20s and going into her 30s and nothing is happening, the panic mode comes in. Because, you know, we're already conditioned you have to have children with a certain age. If you get them after a certain age, they can be deformed, they can have other problems. So that pushes the panic button uh, when that begins to happen. So for ladies in particular, I would say that uh, it's a, a real problem. And uh, maybe the leaders in the churches, the leaders within certain denominations could get together, maybe look at it and see what they can do to try to alleviate the problem. But it's a problem that is real. And if we don't address it, we will find people eventually uh, either going to another group, another church, or they can very well find themselves mixed up with uh, some unsafe situation, especially a person, a workmate, is one of the great dangers uh, in this kind of a situation. Is it ever legitimate to marry someone who is not a believer uh, in the case that you are getting to that age that you're worried? No, the the Bible is very clear that uh, Paul tells us in marry in the Lord. Uh, you marry a person who is a believer. Now, not even marrying a believer is adequate because you should marry the wrong believer. So uh, just because a person professes faith in Christ and maybe attends church, and even a born-again believer, uh, there are a lot of other factors that are, are necessary for a successful marriage. I mean, you, 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 if you, even in the meeting of minds, uh, that's an important factor. The, the so, your social background is another important factor. I would even even say to you, even the, the whole fact of nationality sometimes is a problem. Um, I lived in St. Lucia. I lived in St. Vincent. I lived in Barbados, now in Antigua. And I'm telling you this, a St. Lucia is not an Antiguan. Hmm. And a St. Lucian is not a Barbadian. Uh, they've got certain cultural things that, and e- even as, as the matter of eating, simple things of eating and stuff like that, and what they they, they like. So I think there are a lot of other factors that are important. But um, just because a person is a Christian, shouldn't just marry a Christian. But definitely, a believer should never make the mistake of marrying a person who is not a believer. Uh, you are going to jeopardize your life, and uh, it is going to be very painful and hurtful in the long term, and God does not sanction his people marrying people outside the faith. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, a live interactive call-in program. The phone line is available if you have a question. You can call and be put live on the air, one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 1454 If you have been trying to join us on Facebook Live, we are working out difficulties. And we will have that video up, Lord willing, in a short matter of time. We look forward to uh, hearing from you, whether it be a question or a suggested topic. Now, I am very excited, Pastor, about our topic this evening. It's a topic that relates to us as, as Christians at all times, especially in times when our routines are disrupted, when even our livelihoods, our churches our sporting events, and all social gatherings are restricted. Our topic tonight is that of civil disobedience. Pastor, let's start off by defining what you mean by civil disobedience. 
I think one of the very simple definition of civil disobedience is that's an act of refusing to obey some governmental directive or law that the citizens deems either unjust or evil, cruel or tyrannical. And the, the goal is always to somehow to influence a change in that law or that directive, um, that it be squashed or it be altered or it be just removed. But the, the basically, it's about disobeying a, a, a rule or a, 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 um, a law or directive given by government. Generally speaking, I might add as well that it's normally nonviolent opposition to something that the government um, wants the citizen to do. And the, the protest normally takes the form of maybe boycotting, picketing, marching, um, sitting, strikes, etc. So that, that's generally what um, civil disobedience is, is simply not um, obeying government in respect to some law or some mandate or some directive that the citizen feels as tyrannical or evil or, or cruel or unjust. Historically, and I think there's some value, if nothing else, just to get the context of the discussion. Historically, what has been the general views on this subject? Well, generally, when it comes to civil uh, disobedience, there are three basic views that have been held uh, over the years, and maybe I can share those with you. Um, there are those who say, believe that civil disobedience is always right. Um, I call this the Bolshevik anarchists. This is normally uh, people who want to foment agitation or unrest, uh, want to foster some kind of revolution. Their goal really is civil unrest and political sabotage. But their, that, their position is it's always right to practice um, civil disobedience. The second position that is, um, is what you might call blind patriotism, that civil disobedience is never right. Uh, this is when uh, I call this patriolatry, not patriotism. This is where you support the government at all costs and you're blind to policies and actions and, and even legislation that would coerce uh, unjust, uh, coerce the public um, by some unjust or tyrannical or, uh, law or evil. But you so much favor the government that there's nothing the government can do and even when they're doing something that's wrong, uh, you are against any kind of uh, civil disobedience. The third uh, position, which is the general the Christian position, is called biblical realism, that civil disobedience is sometimes right. And what this position um, purports is that absolute submission is to be given only to God and to God's word because God is the ultimate sovereign. But when an unjust law or an evil law uh, requires... Uh, the citizen to to follow, uh, it is just and right for the citizen to refuse to follow that unjust law, that tyrannical law, and so. But again, uh, it's resisting nonviolently. So those are the three positions. Uh, it is always right. It is never right, and it is sometimes right. Uh, those basically are the, the the three positions that are held historically on this matter. As I hear you start to lay the groundwork for our discussion tonight on civil disobedience, I hear you refer to the government. And I think it's very important that we understand that there's the whole issue of what is our role to the government. And I think before we go any further, we probably need to discuss that more. What are our responsibilities from a biblical standpoint toward the government? Well, I think that when you look into Scripture, uh, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, you'll find that there are certain parameters that are um, set in relation to government. In other words, you have um, a form 
uh, that, that regulates government. The government has never been given absolute power, either in the Old Testament economy or the New Testament economy. Under the Old Testament economy of law, even when it came to the king, there were certain strictures that were placed against the king, for example, in respect how many wives he could have, in respect to the place of taxation and the conscripting people to the army. you find that in the book of Deuteronomy, etc. Uh, but when it comes to the New Testament, uh, which we probably would, would pay more attention to in this matter, there are two main passages that regulates the Christian's attitude towards government, and those are Romans chapter 1, verse 1 and following, and then First uh, Peter chapter three verse five to six. If you were to uh, look at those passages, uh, you'll find that we can extract several principles uh, from those passages that would help the Christian to understand what is his responsibility in re- regards to the government, and also um, is he expect to just blindly follow uh, the, the government, everything the government does, or does he have a responsibility at any time? Uh, to go against uh, what the government says. From those two passages, let me just mention the the, the principles that are very, very clear. In Romans 13.1, it is clear that uh, the first thing the the Christian understands is that God has ordained government. Government is not a human invention. It doesn't matter what the sociologists say or what uh, those who study archaeology or whatever say. The fact is that uh, according to Romans chapter 13, verse 1, government has been ordained of God. As a matter of fact, when you come to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, after the flood, you find that that's the very institution of human government. When uh, man is now given the right to the authority to take the life of another person who commits capital murder. And that is not the rule of the individual. That is now given to government. So from Genesis chapter 6 onward, uh, God established human government. And Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says what, brother? Romans 13.1 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that are ordained of God. Again, uh, Paul is very, very clear that the human government is an institution that is established and ordained of God. But how do you say that when there's human governments that have murdered millions and millions of people, even the Jews? Yeah. But again, uh, government is established by God, but it doesn't mean that God endorses the evil the government commits. Uh, and that's why, for example, uh, when Paul wrote this passage in Romans chapter uh, um, 13, Remember the person on the throne was Nero. And very few people are more evil than Nero nor Caliglia, the, the, uh, the Roman emperors. Nero himself murdered his mother in order to ascend the throne. Nero himself, uh, you recall, he burned Rome and then blamed it on the Christians. And then he made Christian human torches to, in the orgies of the Roman Empire. Uh, they just burned Christians as, as you would burn um, a lantern, basically. But this is the same man that Paul uh, tells the believers that the government is ordained of God. The government, the institution of government is ordained of God. That's the, that's the thing that's important. Um, but the Christian can't get away from that. Human government is not a man, human invention. This is something that God has established. And Paul explains that uh, there are ministers of God to those that do good as opposed to those that do evil. And that is where um, we will discover later that this is the basis of civil disobedience. When government exceeds God's purpose and God's design, they have gone outside the pale of God's regulations and therefore they abrogate uh, their rights 
uh, to the obedience of his people. Paul would point it out later. Another interesting passage, uh, Nathan, is uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. I don't know if you could just read that for us. Yeah, Daniel chapter 4 and verse, verse 32. 32 says, And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times seven shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Again, that has to do with the great um, Babylonian monarch who, in his pride and his ego, boasted, Is this not great get Babylon that I have built? And the moment he said those words, God sentenced him to become like an ox eating grass for seven years. And the Lord said, you'll remain in that condition until you come to the point where you understand that it is I, God, that put you in that position. I exalt one and I pull down one. Again, this has to do with the sovereignty of God in respect to human government. So uh, both in Romans chapter 1, Daniel chapter 4, and the other passage we can look at, uh, the, the, the first thing that we need to establish is that we as Christians understand that God has ordained government and uh, it is he that's his plan that would to hold and check and put sin in check and to allow people to live um, in peace and hopefully in freedom uh, human government has been established uh, to punish the evil and to recognize the good the second principle is that God commands obedience to government uh, submission, therefore, to the civil authorities is normative for a Christian. God expects us, under normal circumstances, to be obedient. Romans chapter 1, again, uh, read, read verse 4. Chapter 13, verse 4. Romans chapter 13 and verse 4 says, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Read verse 3 as well. Verse 3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Again, God is calling upon believers to submit to civil authority. Uh, and, of course, within the context that they're operating, within the framework that God has established. So we need not only to recognize that God has ordained government, we need to understand that the Christian is supposed to submit uh, to government. And part of that submission means that we must learn to obey uh, the government. If you look at uh, the parallel passage in First Peter chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. First Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, for after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. In verse 6, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are. That is First Peter? Uh, yes, First Peter chapter 3, Okay, um, verses 5 and 6. Okay, um, I've got the wrong reference there. Uh, maybe it's um, chapter 5. Check chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Uh, yeah, see what that says. Uh, verse 5 says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Okay. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that ye may exalt you in due time. Okay, uh, look at First Peter 2.13. 1 Peter 2.13 says... 
submit yourselves to every ordinance of man yeah, for the Lord's for. sake, yeah. whether it be to the king as supreme. Okay, and then Titus 3.1. Titus 3.1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Okay. The point I'm making here that the submission that is called for in Romans chapter th- 13, um, that uh, that submission I- I embodies obedience, that we must not submit to government has to do with the element of obedience that we that means that we obey government generally speaking but when the government goes beyond the parameters that god has set then we have a right uh, a divine right uh to reject whatever they're doing so submission and obedience goes together and they're used together in parallel passages so number one we're saying that god has ordained government number two uh, God commands the believer to submit to government, which involves the matter of obeying government. Uh, the other thing is that civil obedience is necessary. Uh, uh, civil obedience, sorry, is necessary even to an evil government. Uh, I mentioned before that when Paul wrote um, Romans thirteen, that the man that sit on the throne was Nero, and there was not a more depraved, despotic ruler in ancient time than Nero. But yet Paul is calling upon believers. Uh, uh, not only to uh, recognize the fact that God has established government, calling upon them to submit. So therefore, even though Nero is an evil person in himself, yet they must still submit to the government. Uh, so that is that is something that I think that's vitally important for us as believers, that we don't just obey men that we think are, are Christians in government or men that we, you know, in the the world, I don't know many, many um, leaders who are morally upright that we would recognize and, and, and say that, you know, these, are, these, are Christ, these people follow Christian morals. But that doesn't mean that we don't obey the laws that they make and the legislation that they make unless that legislation violates some biblical principle or conscience. We must obey even if we've got people who we consider to be evil and not Christian in their way of thinking. Um, and then the other thing, that, the other important factor when it comes to dealing with government, that in Romans chapter 13, verse 2, yeah, that's a powerful verse. Yeah, I was just Paul, here Paul at that. equates rebellion against government as rebellion against God. Yeah. We read that. Romans 13.2 says, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Yeah. Now, if you take that, that passage in strict isolation and not look at other passages, you will get the idea anything the government says you should do. Mm-hmm. And if you resist that, you're resisting God. But we do have, and I'll deal with that later, we do have several examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament of civil disobedience that God approved. So the danger of taking a, a verse in its context without looking at the broader picture, and, and, and in other words, you can't isolate Romans chapter 13 from what the Bible teaches in other parts. And that's the mistake people make all the time. They find one passage, and they build their whole doctrine on that one passage without seeing how that relates to other biblical passages. Because Paul is here dealing strictly with, with the matter of obedience to government. He's not dealing with the matter of civil disobedience. But you'll find later, uh, as I'll show you both in the Old Testament and New Testament, that there were people who deliberately violated a mandate or a decree that was given by the legitimate government, and it was disobeyed, and God sanctioned it. So we got to be very, very careful to don't think that that's an absolute statement without any preconditions, because there are things that a government can do 
that can lead a believer uh, to violate uh, obedience to the government. And then number five, obedience to government is not unqualified. In other words, it is not absolute. There are limitations and there are parameters when it comes to this whole matter of disobedience of obedience. Just to cite a few examples, for example, in, we'll come to Acts chapter four, where Peter asked the authorities, "You, you, 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 uh, you're telling me not to preach." You're telling me not to proclaim Christ. You tell me which is wiser, to obey you or to obey God. The answer, of course, to obey God. And Peter went against the uh, the moratorium that they placed on him preaching. And he declared Christ against what the civil authorities were saying. In Daniel 1 and 6, uh, Daniel chapter 1, uh, the matter of um, taking even the matter of um, the government dispensing food offered to idols which was offensive to Daniel's sensitivity and you find that Daniel refused to take the the uh, the drink and the food that was given to him but he reasoned with the caretaker uh, to try him out giving him just vegetable diet but again he refused to take of these things because he knew they were offered to idols and then what about the moratorium that was placed on prayer nobody will pray for a whole month to any god except to me that's what the king said what did Daniel do? He prayed to God. Not only did he pray to God, he prayed to God openly. The same window he prayed on every day. He didn't change that in order to accommodate the king. So this is a decree from what we would say is governmental authority, but it violates a biblical principle. We pray to God, we don't pray to man. And so, uh, and God sanctioned that because when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, uh, it is there that uh, a miracle took place, basically, and that Daniel was rescued. So God is to be obeyed so long uh, government is to be obeyed so long as they remain under the authority of God. But when they usurp the place of God, they are not to be obeyed, and that is what civil disobedience is all about. And then the, the sixth thing that I think is important when you look at those two passages is that we need not obey the evils of government. Now, we need to obey government, but we need not to obey the evils of government. We are forbidden to do evil no matter who promotes it, and disobedience to evil or injustice is the moral imperative of a Christian. Uh, and we need to take that position. By the way, I don't think there are better citizens any part in the world than believers, true, genuine believers. But that doesn't mean that we're going to uh, obey everything the government says when we believe that thing violates God or violates the Scripture. So I think those are some of the, 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 the overriding principles uh, that would help us to understand uh, so unqualified submission or obedience um, is not demanded of Scripture. When you got an oppressive government or an evil government, uh, it is not patriotism for you to say, well, whatever they say, I, I, I obey. If that um, law or that rule or that stricture or that decree violates your conscience or causes you to do something contrary to God's Word, the believer has every legitimate right to protest, and to practice civil disobedience by completely ignoring that law uh, if necessary. Something that you mentioned when you're talking about Daniel and how he not only prayed to God, but he prayed with the window open, and you said the phrase, as he regularly had. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, especially in this day and age where uh, there are Christians saying, my rights are being infringed because of uh, the government restrictions with COVID-19 or whatever the case may be. I believe, I'm confident in saying this, Pastor, that I believe there are people out there that normally wouldn't take a stand, mm -hmm. but in order to get 
followers or in order to become the so-called Christian martyr, mm -hmm. they are suddenly taking a stronger stand than they would have under our so-called normal circumstances yeah. just in order to become that martyr, so-called martyr. Well, I just hope that it's not a PR stunt because a lot of people, uh, I don't know, there's something about television that people just are fascinated with, like see the names maybe emblazoned somewhere or they know on the news, whatever it is. It, it kind of build up their moral portfolio or something. I'm not too sure what the reason is. But I hope that the Christians who are now uh, seem to be wanting to take this, this stand, I hope that uh, it is not something that is superficial. But in, in, the, in the case of what we're dealing with with this, uh, this virus, um, I really sincerely think that the government is trying to do what they think is best. I really think that the, the, the concern about the, the welfare of people and uh, individuals endangering other people by taking certain liberties, I don't think this is, uh, at least in Antigua, I can't speak in regard to other parts of the world, I don't think this is a deliberate ploy on the politicians to try to keep the country closed down. I really think they're trying to see what's the best way forward. And it's inconvenient. Let's be very honest. It's very, very inconvenient. Something is very, very testing. Uh, but I, I think that uh, we just need to comply. And as time, things begin to change. And I just understand there are eight different companies, I think, who may have a virus, um, have a, a vaccine of some kind. And we're not talking about whatever stage it is. But until then, I think we it's better to, to, be, to be cautious than to uh, venture out and... Uh, pay a much bigger price. I think I read uh, on the internet uh, that even in China, uh, in the same place where it started, that they kind of liberated the people and they understand now they've got a fresh batch is happening. Mm. I think something else happened in America as well where they gave uh, leeway and they had some meetings and then now they've got another new, new batch of this whole thing. So let's be very, very careful and uh, let's make sure that when we practice any form of civil disobedience, there is a um, some particular um, just reason for it and not just to be political or just because you don't like party uh, and party politics. That's not the person for, uh, reason to do it. They're looking after your welfare. Look at it from that angle and not because you're not part of this party or whatever. Therefore, everything they do, you oppose. I think that's what's happening in America. It's divided in America so much uh, and I hope it doesn't become this cannibalistic here in, in the Caribbean. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in interactive program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios on this Tuesday evening is 8.09. We have Facebook Live video feed up, so if you've been trying and you haven't seen it, maybe you even gave up, let me encourage you to go back to our Facebook page, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Click on the Facebook Live video feed and you can join us that way. You can comment your questions or your concerns or your thoughts on there. Or you can call and be put live on the air. The phone line is open and available. It's 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text, you can send your question to 268-782-1454. Pastor, we have a question that's come in from Bendel's Antigua. Greetings to you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our soon-coming King. Pastor... Would I would like you to help me with Proverbs chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. And let me read those verses. It says, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Verse 5, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, though hand in join in hand he shall not be unpunished. 
uh, I, I'm trying to digest what was said. Can you read it again? Yeah. Uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. I suppose the person is thinking that God deliberately creates evil people. I think that's the problem we're having there. But what I think that uh, David is, uh, the psalmist, uh, sorry, uh, Proverbs, uh, Solomon is trying to establish is that God is completely sovereign, that God makes everybody, and that even the, the wicked person uh, can be used instrumentally by God for his purpose. I think that's why. I'm not, I don't, I, I, there's no way that you can suggest uh, again, that's the danger of taking one passage of Scripture and ignoring the other. Uh, the Bible makes it very, very clear that God cannot uh, be tempted with evil, never he tempted anybody to do evil. So any suggestion that God makes somebody evil in the sense that God deliberately and uh, purposefully created an evil person, if you have that suggestion, I think you need to balance that with other passages of Scripture that makes it very clear that God is not a person who creates evil or does evil. I think what that really means is that God uh, uses the evil person, and because he is the creator of both everybody, uh, it's his creation. So it is it's not that he made the person evil so that he can use the person. Uh, that is now impugning the holiness of God because he is against evil. For me to do right, for him that knows to do right and do it not, to him it is sin. Uh, so that must not be the way you interpret that passage of Scripture. I would interpret that passage of Scripture if you take other passages of Scripture that God is sovereign, he makes everybody, and even the wicked are instrumental in fulfilling his purpose uh, because he's sovereign. That's how I would interpret that. I remember a day or two after Osama bin Laden was killed uh-huh. by the U.S. military, I remember observing a number of believers on Facebook debating uh, whether it was appropriate to celebrate uh, an evil man's death. And uh, as I recall, there's a verse that says God takes no pleasure in the death of the yeah, evil. Yeah. I death forget exactly wicked. where. Yeah. Takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, yeah. And uh, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Again, you haven't had a chance to study it out, but is it ever appropriate to celebrate? Uh, the well, de- if the enemy is the enemy of God, I mean, not, you don't rejoice over your personal enemies. Okay. But I would say to you, there's nothing, uh, and again, that comes back to the Psalms. Most of the imprecatory Psalms, David is calling for divine justice. He's not taking personal justice in his own hand. He's calling upon God. And again, that goes back to the book of Romans, which says, uh, um, um, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Uh, you don't take vengeance, you let Lord take vengeance. The imprecatory psalms is God, is they, uh, the, the psalmist calling on God to act on his behalf. He, he Obviously, his emotions are involved in the whole process, but he himself is not going to take the vengeance. He's calling upon God to do God, you do this. God, you do that. Uh, uh, so, I, I, don't, I think it might be, if you're dealing with personal um, vengeance or uh, finding personal pleasure because of somebody that, uh, if it's not personal, but I, I think if you have a, if an American or I'm a, a Antiguan, uh, let's suppose we had somebody who would threaten Antigua or somebody who would, uh, for whatever reason, 
but this was a possibility of maybe wiping off the, the entire population of Antigua. Uh, when that, a person that is captured, of course, every Antiguan should rejoice because it's part of your, your nationalist pride. And you can't divorce nationalist pride when you look at what the, how the Israelis view their, 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 their nation. I think every nation ought to be proud. When they say, I've got to be very careful use that word proud. <laughs> Uh, some people are offended by it. But uh, I think everybody should find a pleasure in their country and want the best for their country. And if there is a, a villain or uh, um, an evil person that perhaps is disrupting society or causing great danger to society, like a murder on the loose yeah. who's killed three or four people and you, everybody's living in fear and trepidation and then finally the police captures him. The moment you hear that on the radio, I would rejoice because I'm putting, you know, my life is jeopardized, my family is jeopardized. But that doesn't mean I don't have a concern for that person that I would not preach the gospel to him or would not try to witness if I could. I would still want him to come to know Christ as Savior. But being restrained and being controlled and being under the proper authorities that can regulate him and make sure that he doesn't commit any other offense, I see nothing wrong with that, to be honest with you. And when Ben Laden was, was shot or killed, I think every American should have rejoiced. And if I was an American, I would rejoice too. <laughs> Uh, the second verse that they were asking about uh, is verse 5. It says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Yeah, well, that gives you an idea. I think the Bible makes it quite clear that... Uh, some things that God hates, and one of the things that God hates is a proud heart. Yeah. Pride is one of those ver- one of those vices that you never find ever sanctioned in the Bible. And uh, certainly in this passage, the proud man, no matter what he does, uh, though he might surround himself with friends and join with other people who are just equal to he still is going to be punished. There's nothing the proud person can do that can uh, in any way stop the eventually God punishing him. I think that's how you would interpret that. But nothing he can do because the proud man, God has got his arrow at the proud man's heart, and he is going to be brought down because God hates pride. Thank you to the individual who sent in that question from Bendel's Antigua. Phone line. Uh, Nathan, yeah. let me just say this. I, I know that sometimes when we give these explanations, people say, but, but Pastor, you're trying to, it's a kind of a couple. No, the, the thing about it is this. You cannot take any one isolated verse of Scripture and build any uh, complete doctrine around it or teaching around it. You have to balance that with other passages of Scripture because what, when when a person writes that, he's writing it in a particular uh, frame of mind, particular circumstances, and this is exactly what he feels, what he thinks. But the other passages of Scripture that bring some balance into that. If you don't interpret Scripture like that, you would have a mishmash where you've got all kinds of contradictions that make no sense and therefore it becomes totally illogical and unreasonable. Pastor, we have a question that just came in from Antigua. Pastor, is the government controlled by the ministers, or is the government controlled by another body of ministers in another part of the world? That's above my pay grade. I'm going to let you answer that. <laughs> Look, there are a lot of conspiracy theories that out there, basically. Uh, there are a lot of people who believe that the Illuminati, uh, the Lodge, uh, to believe that the, these are the ones. There are others that believe that the financiers of the world, the, the money people, uh, and uh, the world, certain world leaders control and make puppets of these small islands, etc., etc. Um, I, I look. I think that other 
governments and other people try to influence governments. Uh, no question about that. Um, you're living in a world where they're rubbing shoulders with people, uh, other leaders from all over the world, and every every major uh, block is trying to influence s- small islands and so on, et cetera. So that that's a given. But I think finally, the leaders of a country make decisions that they think is in the best interest of the country. I think it would be treasonous for any person to be in government and making decisions without due regard to what's the best for the country. I think when your prime minister makes decisions, I'm not saying he's not influenced by outside forces, but I find it uh, I, I find it almost impossible for me to countenance that he be making decisions that are reckless without due regards to what is in the best interest of Antigua. And I think that is generally true of most uh, countries. And uh, that's my view on the matter. But that does not mean that they're not uh, world trading blocks and the world financiers and world the World Bank and other um, groups that don't try to influence small countries. Of course, they do. You take the you take the uh, the the pervasive um, pushing of homosexuality and and now the transgender and I think there are what, fifty other genders now. Yeah. Uh, fifty two, <laughs> I think I saw. This <laughs> my son uh, gave me a joke this week. Uh, well, he, he said, you know, what he can't understand that. All the only people seem to be catching this virus are male and female. What happened to the other fifty-two? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I smile, but I uh, I think that nations and powerful nations have an agenda, yeah. and I think they push that on third-world countries and small countries. But I think ultimately, uh, with very few rare exceptions, I think governments of countries make decisions uh, that uh, for the welfare of the people. The topic tonight is civil disobedience. If you have a question about another topic, please don't hesitate to call in and ask it. And phone number is one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. WhatsApp or text two six eight seven eight two one four five four. While we're waiting for your call, for your question, we will continue our discussion on civil disobedience. Now, Pastor, it seems like there's a whole spectrum of views on this, and it seems to me as if the vital matter is where do we draw the line on that spectrum as far as whether it's ever appropriate for Christians to engage in civil disobedience. What are your thoughts? The the, the whole issue, I think that when you look at Scripture, generally speaking, uh, and you look at the examples, which I hope to be able to bring to your attention later, that clearly there are times when believers violated the decree or mandate that was given by legitimate uh, civil authorities. And in, in those cases, uh, six or seven cases in the Old Testament and New Testament, God responded positively. He approved of it very, very clearly. So there's not a question whether or not the Bible permits civil disobedience. The question is, when when should you do it? That is the whole issue. In other words, when is it legitimate for a Christian to engage in civil disobedience? And there are basically two positions that Christians have held over the years. And uh, let me state these. There are those who have what is called the uh, promulgative view. And what I mean by that is that they hold that when a government uh, decrees or promotes evil or calls for the practice of evil uh, that is contrary to Scripture, the believer has a right to practice civil disobedience. In other words, this is a government advocating it, a government promoting it or proclaiming it. 
They said once the government promotes it or proclaims it or, or, or push it or promulgates it, therefore you can disobey on the basis that they're promoting it. The other view is the compulsive view, which is what I hold to, is not when the government uh, uh, promotes it or broadcasts that you do it, but when the government commands you or compels you as a Christian to do evil, then I think is when a Christian should practice disobedience. Let me explain the difference here. Suppose that the, the government of... Um, for, for, don't, don't want to use Antigua because that might be seen to be discriminatory. Uh, the government of Barbados uh, mm-hmm. says that there should be no, no prayer tomorrow. That's a, a, that, that's a, a... We are promoting that there should not be any prayer. But does that mean that we, um, as Christians, know go there and do whatever needs to be done and whatever or now what if the government compels you now uh, there's a difference there I can still continue to obey a government that says I shouldn't pray but they don't enforce it but when the government now enforces it now I can be disobedient I hope people can see the subtle distinction between the promotion of something and the compulsion to something and I think that is where the subtle distinction lives between these two different groups Pastor, we have a question that's just come in from Antigua. Good night. I want to know how many husbands or wives actually ask God for a partner since the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom, and all these things will be added. Well, I wish I, 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 wish I knew myself. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. This is something very personal, but I would think that people who are looking for uh, a partner uh, would be asking God to bring the right person uh, in their life. Um, there's nothing wrong in seeking the kingdom of God first. That doesn't mean you can't seek a partner. The same thing as seeking the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, sometimes the best way in your pursuit of the kingdom of God and f- fulfilling your mission in the kingdom of God is with a partner. Amen. So it, it's not either or. Uh, and then remember as well that it was God that initiated marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. So there's nothing wrong with a person wanting um a wife or wanting a husband, the the ultimate pursuit is the pursuit of God and His righteousness. But under there's a subset where under that you can be still also be in pursuit of a partner. So don't think that the two are opposed to each other. The two of them can be harmonized. And I would say to you that uh, a lot of believers, I can't speak with respect because I don't know people's mind, but I would say to you a lot of godly believers uh, have always been pursuing the kingdom of God but they've also been asking God to bring the right person in their life as they pursue the ultimate uh, fact of, of God's kingdom. So I don't think the two are opposed to each other. Thank you for that question. Uh, Pastor, you want to elaborate any more on those two views and maybe the anything yeah. else you want to mention? Yeah, let me, let me elaborate on, on this, uh, this view about um, uh, the, what is called the promulgative or promulgative, however you want to pronounce that uh, view. Um, this basically is a view that was espoused by a guy called Samuel Rutherford. Uh, he wrote the book Lex Rex. Before kings believed in the right, for divine right of kings, whatever the king did is right because he was the one that God had put on the throne. It's like people say you should not, you should not trouble the Lord's anointed. You hear that commonly, etc. Yeah. especially people who are doing evil in, within churches. The moment the members begin to hold them accountable, you should must touch the Lord's anointed. <laughs> uh, so, but Samuel Rutherford uh, uh, 
uh, change all of that. Instead of saying that Rex Lex, the the, the king, um, the king is king. He said Lex Rex, the law is king. In other words, the, he now put the king under the law. Right? And he believed that this is the, 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 the movement he started, and he wrote the book in 1648, uh, The Law is King. And his emphasis was that um, even the government, even the king is under the law. It was a revolutionary concept um, because the divine right of kings was something that was exposed during his time. He tried to change that. So he's the one that really suggested and brought around the idea that uh, once a king promote, once a, a government promotes evil, or uh, advocates evil, the 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 um, the Christian has a right to civil disobedience. The other person that expresses this way in modern terms, if you probably heard of um, Francis Schaeffer, yeah. Doctor Francis, he's deceased now, but he wrote the book called a Christian Manifesto uh, in 1980, and he again supports uh, this view that once a government begins to promote evil or is tyrannical, uh, it, the believer has a right to, uh, to practice civil disobedience. And, and um, there are reasons why they believe that. Um, first of all, uh, they argue that the power of government is not absolute. It's limited by God's word. And since all are under God's law, even the king is under God's law. And, and therefore, the, once the government begins to promote something contrary to God's word, therefore, uh, this is a legitimate basis for um, uh, civil disobedience. The other thing that they argue, not only is the um, government not absolute, but they argue as well that the law of God is above the government. Uh, that's why he said the law is king. God's word is law, and Christian obedience is to God and to government only in so far as the government acts within the confines of God's law. That was the third argument they used. The other one that they said that is that a government which rules tyrannically is contrary, is acting contrary to God's law. So therefore, on the basis of that, uh, they ought to be disobeyed. So tyranny in ruling without is without the sanction of God. So they, they feel that if a tyrannical government is in place, the believer has a right to practice civil disobedience. Now, I have a problem with that because when Paul wrote, you can have a more tyrannical government than, than, than Nero. Yeah. So because he promulgated evil or promoted evil, the Christian was still told to obey. He didn't, he, uh, when it comes to the point when he's compulsing Eden, or when he was saying, well, all you got to do is to offer a little incense to Caesar and call Caesar Lord. When that came to the point, no Christian said, we can't do that. So they practiced civil disobedience. And for 300 years, uh, Martyrs became fodder for animals and became the lanterns for the orgies in the Roman um, in the Roman camp. But again, uh, it was not the mere fact that they promulgated evil that brought civil disobedience. When they compel the evil, then that they, they acted, and then um, and they also believe that um, citizens should resist tyranny, and it's the right of a Christian uh, person to do that. Um, I wanted to quote. Uh, what Schaefer said along this line. He said that Christians have a moral obligation to resist unjust and tyrannical governments, and he said it said, when an office uh, commands that which is contrary to God's word, those who hold that office abrogates their authority and are not to be obeyed, including the state. Now, Schaefer wrote this book in 1980, 
and he pretty much depended a lot on Rutherford's writings uh, that law was king. So, but that is the view there, and that, those are the reasons why they support that view. The other view, um, which I hold to, is what I call the anti-compulsive view, and that is, I believe that, like the those that say that when the government promulgates evil, therefore a person can disobey. I agree with that. There's a room for civil disobedience, but I think where I draw the line is where there is compulsion. It's not just the pro- proclamation of the evil or the endorsement of evil, but the actual coercion to do evil or compulsion, that's where I draw the line. So when a government commands evil or compels evil or negates freedom or religious uh, practice religious oppression, it is then, I believe, that the believer has a right to practice civil disobedience. Let me interrupt you there and really bring the rubber down to the road. Uh-huh. So, again, not trying to stir no, things up, ahead. but... When the government says, whatever country you want to choose around the world, I think this is the case in many countries right now, when the government says you cannot meet as a collective group in your church congregation, in your church building, they're compulsing, they are making a a rule. So do I not have a right to go and disobey that? I, I look. I think what has to look. You have to look at the context of what's going on. I personally, like right now in Antigua, we can't meet as a church. I'm not going to curse the government. I'm not going to call that the the government uh, pull down its strictures and uh, allow that because again, you're dealing with a deadly disease. I just saw. I just saw on the internet today. Uh, one, a very young lady who is a, a, a mail carrier in America. Uh, just contracted a young person and just mm-hmm. died. I saw another one who was a railroad worker where somebody spit out of the 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 train and spit on her and she died of the the, the, the mm-hmm. disease so it's not it's, we, we're not mm-hmm. we're playing with human life now it's not something that uh that uh the government is playing tricks and they want to the the the, the present government want or the whatever wants to destroy the, it's not that I think we there's so many things we don't know, and I think Christians need to be very 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 cautious on this matter. And um, not try. I, I know in America there's a lot of tension now, a lot, a lot of tension, and they're calling for the government to open up the economy and restart everything. But again, there's so many uh, uncertainties that we're not too sure. The, the problem with that, let's suppose the government does do that, and then it turns out to be one of the worst decisions that it made. The same people that are calling now for the uh, removing all this restraint now become the, the main enemy of the government and, and yeah. blames the government for everything. So I don't think it's a matter of um, fighting in these, ma- in, in, in these issues. I saw a pastor as well that died uh, who was uh, insisting that they meet and they met. He died. Uh, I, don't, I think we are much more sensible uh, approach here in Antigua. And I don't think we as a politicized it is uh, in America, especially with the Trump presidency. I think that has exacerbated the whole matter there in, in America. But I, um, I don't think it is legitimate for uh, myself or any other church to just defy the government of Antigua and say, listen, we're calling to worship tomorrow, irrespective of what happened. Uh, I don't think that is right. I think that uh, the generally, I think the public generally would think that that is totally anti-Christian. I think it would be very offensive to the public, and I think you lose your witness and your testimony. I think people understand uh, that we're in a dilemma where we're not too sure what we can do because this is nothing we've been exposed to before, and governments are trying to get a handle on it as to how much liberty we can allow, how much freedom we can allow. I think that will go on for a while until maybe we find a vaccine. And I think we need to cooperate with the government and not just act in rebellion. Along those same lines, what advice do you have 
for the believer who says, but pastor, I'm discouraged because I see grocery stores are able to open up with minimal people in there. And I see other things, but I don't see them opening up for my church. Well, I think the government needs to relook at that for sure, uh, Nathan, definitely about that. I really think that uh, we can practice social distancing with mass within the church setting. But I think the, the personal interaction, the personal touch needs to be there. Uh, uh, you know, we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So we have a mandate that we should meet and to socialize, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think the government needs to look at that very carefully. And I do feel that there should be at least some way of um, incrementally allowing that. Even if you allow, say, 25 of a, a congregation to meet maybe three times this Sunday, have three different services. You know, I think the government ought to be sensible to try to accommodate the church. The church is not the enemy of the government. The right. church supports the government. But at the same time, the, the, the government needs to understand that the church needs to function. And I think it would be wisdom for any government to really sit down and evaluate this whole matter and see how they can liaise with the, gov- with the, the church and how they can accommodate uh, the church setting. I think that would be wisdom. I think, again, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there and things are very, the situation is very fluid, but uh, I did see some documents recently from government officials that they're looking at doing that in the within the next month or so here in Antigua, different things. So back to our topic of... Uh, Pastor, we got another question that has yeah. come in. Uh, the time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.35. And a WhatsApp question from Antigua. Uh, hi, good night. My apologies for moving away from t- tonight's topic. But in a previous program, the pastor addressed blasphemy as the unforgivable sin. However, I was reading Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, where Paul said he was a blasphemer. If he was a blasphemer, was he forgiven? If so, please explain. Well, I think the person probably missed something on the program. I said blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the yeah. only unforgivable sin. And that is not on the authority that I'm speaking and pontificating as a pastor. That is in the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Remember when our Lord was casting out demons and you had these pharisaical legalists uh, who were, the Bible says that they uh, betrayed him because of envy. Uh, the masses were now following him. They were now put in the shadows. And they were doing everything to undermine his, his integrity and his credibility. And one of the things that they did when he cast out demons is that they were charging that he was operating by the power of Beelzebub, prince of demons. In other words, the power he has to cast out demons had been delegated to him by Satan. And uh, he said to them, listen, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom does your children cast them out? They cast out by demons too. He's, he's reciprocating. But then he went on to make it very clear that um, every sin in this world is forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this. It's attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to satanic power. And remember, the agency of conversion is the Holy Spirit. He has to convict you of sin. And the Lord is making it very, very clear. The same agent of conversion, when you blaspheme him, you have actually put yourself outside the pale of his operation. So he warns that that is the one sin that the Bible says is uh, will not be forgiven. The other sin that we talked about um, would someone raise the whole question that if a person received the mark of the beast. Again, you go to Revelation. 
and you got another dispensation, or you're not the dispensation of the church, you got the dispensation of tribulation. It is very clear during that period of time that anyone that received the mark of the beast, what he did it by the fake, or what he did it non is not is immaterial. The Bible makes it very clear that anyone that received the mark of the beast, there would be no hope for him, and he'd be cast into hell uh, with the devil and um, the, the false prophet and the antichrist. So you're dealing with two things that the Bible speaks very explicitly about. But when Paul was a blasphemer, he did not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Paul was a blasphemer in the sense that Paul did not accept the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he was God's son. Paul thought that Christ was a, a deceiver, like most people in the New and even the Jews today, by the way. And therefore, he did everything to pull down the name of Christ and destroy the church. But uh, blasphemy can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit specifically, that's a sin that will never be forgiven because Christ himself said that. And that's from Scripture. And that's from Scripture. Pastor, a question from Seaview Farm area here in Antigua. If a man who is intoxicated have a dream about heavenly life, does that man have to be a Christian to have that type of dream? No, absolutely not. Uh, uh People will tell you that even before they were Christians, they had some, some dreams. You have good dreams, you have bad dreams. Something depends on what you eat. Uh, it could very well do, be, though, that the Lord is speaking to that person of the need uh, uh, to be saved. But the fact that you have a dream that you're in heaven or, or you have a dream that you're in hell, that doesn't mean that's your destiny. Uh, I do not discount the possibility that God can use different means to speak to people in different ways. Uh, the only thing I tell people is that when you tell me that God has spoken to you in a dream or God has spoken to you in a vision, uh, is this. If that dream or that vision is contrary to Scripture, I know one thing is not God. But I do not limit God to operate, that he has to operate this way and that way. God is sovereign. And there are times when God does something miraculous because of the, the unbelief uh, that is needed now to bring faith back to God. You find different periods in the Old Testament where that happens, different periods where there are miracles, uh, etc. I, I don't dis discount that. But I, I, I do not, for any one moment, think because you have a dream about heaven that you're going to heaven. What will get you to heaven is very simple. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins, and you claim Him as Lord and Savior. If you do that, guaranteed. But just a dream will never get you there. Is it possible to have dreams if you are not a believer? Of course. I, I, again, uh, this goes back to what I heard Rabbi Zacharias. By the way, he is dying now. I hope you know that. Yeah. And there's no, I don't think it's much possibility that he's going to recover. Short um, of a miracle. Yeah. He's short of a miracle. But again, uh, in his book, one of his books and one of his lectures, uh, he was talking about the movement of the Muslims to Christianity. And in many, many cases, he, he mentioned the fact that they were having dreams, they were having visions, something that we in the Western world, our minds are completely blocked off to. We, we, we don't think in those terms on any, any longer. We just we intellectualize the Bible and we've taken the supernatural out of it. So then when we hear something unusual and something supernatural, we are wondering if this is you know, something that is maybe psychological or something demonic or something infernal, but we've forgotten that God doesn't only appeal to the intellect that he has different ways of means of reaching people and people in the Western world have got opportunities that these people don't have and therefore his intervention in those areas as long as not contrary to scripture we've got to accept that you're listening to That's Truth a live interactive program here on the Radio Lighthouse 
We're thankful for your interaction thus far throughout the evening. We have about 18 minutes left in the program tonight. If you have a question, go ahead and give us a call, 268-462-7420. If you want to WhatsApp or text, 268-782-1454. Pastor Murphy, a number of minutes ago before I interrupted you, you were expounding and uh, explaining the compulsory view of when civil disobedience is acceptable. Uh, anything else you want to Yeah, add? I just want to point out that I think that this this position, uh, remember the two different, the, the promulgative way, once the government begins to promote something, that you, uh, you know, Christian have a right to just disobey. The government doesn't have to compel you, or it's not compulsion, but the mere fact that they are advocating that you do it, that's what they say. Uh, but I find that the, the one that I find that is more in line with is where there's an element of compulsion. Uh, let me use an illustration to give you um, illustrate how in, you find it in scripture that civil disobedience was sanctioned once the government um, um, decreed something. For example, in Exodus chapter one, where you got the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, they have been mandated by Pharaoh to do what? Commit genocide yeah. to take every child that was, I think, two years or, or younger, or whatever it is, to um, to complete exterminate these children. But again, this is a, a command coming from a legitimate government. God has ordained government. You're coming from Pharaoh. But these Hebrew white midwives, uh, Shephur and Pua, they refuse to do it. And in, in, in uh, Genesis 1, uh, sorry, Exodus 1, 20 to 21, God blessed them for their disobedience. How could God bless them for the disobedience of human government if you can't practice disobedience to the decree of an established government? So, uh, so God approved that. Why? Because mandated murder is not sanctioned by God. So you, a, a believer has a right to completely ignore that mandate. Uh, take the matter of Exodus uh, with, with Pharaoh refusing to let people, God's people go to worship. You remember that? Uh, how did Moses respond to that? Uh, Moses, uh, quite frankly, goes to him again and again, etc., uh, refusing to comply with whatever request he made. And Moses saying, look, when I leave here, not a single who for the, the whatever is going to be. But notice that you've got an established government. You've got a tyrannical government ruling an enslaved people and putting certain strictures on them. God says, let my people go to worship. And Moses uh, uh, disobeys the command of Pharaoh, who wants to keep Israel in, in Egypt. Uh, so there, and, and again, no one can read the Exodus story where God displayed miraculous power to deliver his people uh, to doubt that God has sanctioned Moses' disobedience to Pharaoh and not yield to his authority. In First Kings chapter 18, you got a situation where you got a queen called Jezebel. Now she's the civil authority. She is decided to exterminate all the prophets of Israel. But guess what? There's a prophet called Obadiah that hides over a hundred prophets in caves, contrary to the decree that the queen had given. See, And guess what? God bless Obadiah for his disobedience to the government because uh, to kill God's prophets is not something sanctioned by God. She was going beyond the parameters that God has set. Daniel 3 is another one, the three Hebrew boys. You've got a legitimate government. It's called Babylon. You've got uh, the king. He's, he established his great image, and he commands every person to bow and to worship, etc., etc. But you've got three Hebrew boys that stand up like three sore thumbs, and they refuse to kowtow to the, the, the governing authority, and they refuse to practice idolatry. 
so even though it's decreed, they violated the law of the land at the time, and God sanctioned that. In Daniel 6, as we mentioned before, the King Darius uh, making a decree that there's a moratorium prayer that nobody can pray for, I think, two, two or three months, except they pray to him. <laughs> and, and Daniel, in, in no way... Um, falls in line he defies the king quite frankly as a matter of fact when they told the king that you know this man you made this decree the, the, the king is highly offended because uh how could daniel de- but again the decree is not followed by daniel and again god protects daniel in, in the land and the another one is acts chapter four right? we mentioned that uh in connection with peter civil authorities don't preach uh, uh, Peter asked, throw it back in their faces. You, you judge. Should I obey you or ob- obey God? And again, he defied what the government required because it violated uh, the, 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 what God had taught in his word. And then Revelation chapter 30 is another classic one, uh, Nathan, where uh, when the Antichrist begins to rule the whole world, he establishes an image called the image of the beast. And every tongue, nation, tribe is told to bow to that image. Those that suffer martyrdom refuse to bow and are seen under the altar. But again, uh, they go against government and uh, God sanctions what they did because idolatry that is coerced is never sanctioned by God. So a believer should not bite, bite, even if the government says that, even if it's temporary. Those are seven cases both Old Testament and New Testament, where compulsion was the uh, enacted by the government or decreed by the government, and in all those cases, uh, believers refused to comply with the mandate or decree or demand of the government, and that's what I'm talking about. The compulsive aspect of it is where I think it's a Christian uh, approach. You'll notice, by the way, in all of these, there are three common factors. There's a command or decree from some civil authority that is contrary to God's word. There's a willful, deliberate refusal by the believer to yield to that commandment. And there's some kind of, whether implicit or explicit, divine sanction of the action that the believer has taken, showing that God approves the believer disobeying government when compulsion is is mandated by the government. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question. Good night. What's your thoughts on the virus? Do you think it's man-made? And could this be all about forcing us to be vaccinated so that they can control us? Uh, I don't know all the details. I can just tell you my own speculative view. And this is not uh, this is not divine, okay? <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is just on a, uh, the, the humans can err. But uh, as a person who has been following the news and what's been happening... Um, I, I do feel that it came from the laboratory. I do feel that. I think they were they were playing with it, and I think that somehow it escaped, and somehow uh, somebody got infected. I think that is true from what I'm learning, and I'm taking the media, and I don't know what I believe about the media these days. I know 10% of the Americans only believe the media. I think maybe 5% in the Caribbean might do, do that. But the distortion that you had over the past few years, and the lies that have been out there, and then everything is being uncovered. Now, you, these people just don't have any ethics any longer. No morality. Uh, it's just party politics, and they're no longer, there's no longer objectivity. But I do feel that it was it came from the lab. I do feel that uh, I don't know if it was done intentionally. I doubt it was done intentionally. But I do feel that it could have been arrested, and it could have been dealt with within that part of the world. And um, I do feel that China has a great debt 
to pay. And I hope that the governments of the world, especially the third world countries whose economies have been ruined because of this virus, I do hope that China puts a pool of money uh, some side away, that these they can help these governments and bring them back uh, to financial viability. But I do feel that they do have the um, criminal liability, as it were, and I do feel there should be a penalty uh, as far as this is concerned. That's my view. And that is my view, not based on bias or prejudice, and just based on the information and knowing the Chinese government as well. Uh, and, you know, and, and the fact that when this thing happened, a lot of the the doctors who started speaking and talking about it, they were incarcerated. Uh, some of them are even now can't even speak, and that's what a communist regime does. It, it stifles uh, liberty and freedom, and it's a very secretive society. It's not an open society. And when you've got a society like that, you never know what to believe. But I, I think that there is something more than just that it was a bat that, that had this thing. And I, I, one Japanese um, doctor who was a Nobel Prize winner said that they can take back all the Nobel Prizes if this is not a vaccine created by man. He said he's been dealing with vaccines for over 40 years. And his point was that if it was natural, it would have died off in the cold part where where it was started and when it came to the but he said that's a normal trend with with normal viruses that is not that this is a global thing that's taken over the whole globe and whether it be cold or hot it seemed to be affected so he believes and he he made the point that if it can be proven that this is not a man-made vaccine that could take back all the Nobel prizes that he's ever won i think that's a very significant uh, position to hold and that in my judgment um, says a lot about his knowledge and his wisdom and his experience with dealing with these things and I don't think he's just going to make that statement without feeling it is somehow justified Pastor I've got a question that's come in via WhatsApp was Pharaoh the one who crucified Jesus or the ministers and the people who believed in Moses you don't mean Pharaoh. Pharaoh's Old Testament. You probably means uh, Herod or something, uh, but I don't think he means Pharaoh. Maybe Pilate. Pilate. Uh, yeah. Listen, uh, there's a total, um, there's a total conspiracy in the whole thing. As a matter of fact, the real persons behind the crucifixion are the religious leaders. There's no doubt about that. You read it in the book of uh, the book of um, the, the Gospels. Um, this is a concerted effort on religious authorities who establish themselves and who now find that this new upstart is taking them out of the limelight and they're no longer, the people are no longer following them, they're following Christ, they become envious of him. And of course, there's no question about some of the things that Christ was saying, if you were alive then, would have rattled your ire. I mean, to claim that before Abraham was you, 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 you are, you, I am. I mean, I mean, this is a, some amazing statements. I'm, the, I'm delighted the world to claim I'm the bread of life. These are amazing statements, but these are only statements that would offend you if you don't acknowledge that He's God, and that was the problem. Uh, and again, coming from the context of the Old Testament, they believe in one God, and it's very hard for them to understand that this God, the Son. Uh, so there is some problems, definitely, that these people had. But remember what the Lord told Simon Peter in in, uh, in chapter 16 of um, Matthew. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my, my Father which in heaven has. So it takes the Holy Spirit to enlighten people to an understanding of who Jesus Christ really is. 
they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They had the spirit of the law ruling their lives, and because of that, they became um, adamant against the truth. And uh, they were, so, I agree with you that the religious leaders are the one that perpetrated the evil, and they're the ones that charge him with blasphemy. Uh, clearly, they're the ones. But again, um, Pilate and Herod, and all of them as well, are culpable because every one of them recognized they were crucifying an innocent man. Um, they said that themselves that yeah. this one is innocent uh, now you, you can imagine a, a judge I'm standing before a judge he has come to the conclusion there's no just reason for this man to be executed but yet because of the people and the cry of the people you yield to their um, plea and you crucified an innocent man so where you can no question about the religious leaders are the ones that perpetrated this crime yet it was facilitated by the Roman authorities who, knowing that this was wrong, still pursued it and committed uh, the crime. You remember Pilate said, I wash my hand of this? Yeah. Read what Paul said in, in Timothy. He was crucified under who? Pontius Pilate. You can't get away from this. And Paul charges in Timothy that Pilate was partly responsible because he himself said the man was innocent. So the, the, initially, the, the main perpetrators are the religious leaders, but also the ones who assisted in actually the actual crucifixion was the political authorities uh, who saw everyone is implica implicated. And by the way, could I say this? Even you who wrote in that question, you're implicated in, in this crime as well because Christ died for you. He died for me. He came to die for the sins of the world. See, Had we not sinned, had you not sinned, there would be no need for his death. So indirectly, uh, just bear in mind that you helped nail him there as well because he was nailed there for your sins. And the wonderful thing about it is his nailing on the cross provides forgiveness for you. What a wonderful truth that is, and I hope you yield to that and trust him as your Lord and Savior. Pastor, we have two minutes left in the program. I don't know if it's enough time to cover the material that you have. We'll just keep pushing ahead. Um, talking about civil disobedience and as we wrap up the topic this evening obviously there is a biblical basis for civil disobedience are there legitimate forms of yeah. civil disobedience and that are supported by scripture yeah there are, i think there are three legitimate forms of civil disobedience that the, the bible will support uh, first of all there's non-violent refusal to obey or comply with a decree we see that clearly with peter notice that peter didn't um, didn't call for an army, he, you know, he didn't try to create revolt. He just simply said, listen, we're not going to obey you. No matter what you do, we're not going to obey you. So there is a legitimate way where you've got a non-violent refusal to obey. Number two is fleeing, fleeing the jurisdiction. You remember that one time they tried to kill Christ and Christ went through the crowd and disappeared? You remember also Elijah? When Jezebel was searching for him, he ran away and went down to Jezreel. So there are times when, you know, run away. You don't have to stay if you don't want to. You go to another country. Go another, And the third thing is you can accept the punishment. Even though you know it's illegitimate, it's wrong, uh, you can accept the punishment. And that's what martyrs have done for 300 years. Uh, those who have refused to yield to government uh, compulsion to do evil uh, as a result uh, they have decided that we're going to suffer those are the three biblical ones a non-violent refusal to obey flee in the jurisdiction if you can and uh, accepting the punishment um, and, and, and trust God 
in the last one minute. What about living in the modern democracies that we have in this Western Hemisphere with the human rights that have been established? Are there other forms of civil disobedience that a Christian can practice? I think so as a Christian. In a democracy, you have been given certain human rights, and I think uh, those rights are right to peaceful, nonviolent protests. And I see nothing wrong with a Christian uh, in a nonviolent way of protesting something that he believes is contrary to God's word. That's his legitimate right, and it's well within the, the parameters of living within a d- democracy. The other one is uh, recourse at law. The government does something, you again say it's evil. That's why we have the law. We can have redress at law. So besides those three in the New Testament, I do feel that there are other legitimate means of dealing with uh, civil disobedience. Thank you very much for the information that you shared tonight, Pastor, a topic that I think is very practical in the day and age that we live. Thank you for joining us tonight on That's Truth. I trust that you were encouraged by what was shared. Make sure that you stay tuned to the Radio Lighthouse. Make sure that you join us next week for another informative topic here on That's Truth. Have a blessed night. Stay safe. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.